Epigenetics Podcast Episode 24. Welcome to the 24th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Sir Adrian Bird. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Adrian, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You received your PhD from the University of Edinburgh in, 1990s, in 1970 and were supervised by Max Bernstein. You then went on to do a postdoc, first at Yale University with Josef G. Gall and then at the University of Zurich before returning to Edinburgh in 1975. There you worked at the MRC Mammalian Genome Unit, where you stayed for 11 years. And then from 1987 to 1990, you continued your research at the Research Institute for Molecular Pathology in Vienna. Then in 1990, you became Buchanan Professor of Genetics at the University of Edinburgh. And you are basically there today. Furthermore, in 2014, you just, or in just in one of your numerous honors, you became a Knight of the British Empire. But a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then pursuing a career in science? Did you plan to pursue a career in science uh, from in the first place? Well, I got interested in biology because I was always interested in uh, the natural world, if you like, nature. I used to keep frogs and tadpoles and snakes and uh, tortoises and... Uh, various rabbits, mice, and uh, various types of animals. So I was interested in biology at that uh, level. Um, and then uh, I would say sometime around about 1960, something like that, when I was 13, 14, I heard about uh, DNA. And um, <clears throat> it wasn't on the syllabus at school at all then. Um, uh, and I saw it because... Uh, on, on the black and white television on a Sunday morning, they had science programs and they had uh, people like uh, Max Perutz and um, um, someone called Asher Corner and John Maynard Smith, various prominent biologists, mostly from Oxford or Cambridge, Cambridge particularly, um, just talking about their work. And uh, I heard about DNA uh, in this uh, way. And For some reason, which I've never fully understood, uh, it got me interested. And um, I got some books about it. And so I was interested in DNA before I left school, even though we didn't really study DNA and hadn't heard about DNA in, in the coursework. And that's what really made me want to go on and do uh, biochemistry. But unfortunately, I was a pretty useless student. Um, I got very bad grades in my exams and um, I just scraped into university just about, University of Sussex. And, and I think I only got in because it was the first year they were ever teaching biology there. It was a new university, new course. Uh, so they let me in um, and um, there were some impressive people there. There was Asher Corner who subsequently uh, died quite young and but was a tremendous influence. And um, Uh, John Maynard Smith, <clears throat> who just moved there from Cambridge and was um, also, uh, you know, an incredibly impressive guy who thought about biology in a way <clears throat> that was completely different from what you had been taught at school. So 
I knew I was interested <clears throat> and, and I knew I had no, no other ideas about what to do. So I, I, um, I took the advice of uh, someone called Jimmy Sang in um, Sussex and applied for a PhD to Max Bernstiel because he had purified a gene. <clears throat> and, you know, underneath all of this abstract genetics, there were the lurking these genes. And clearly they were made of DNA, but uh, no one had one uh, because uh, DNA was just like a big ball of string. Um, uh, and you couldn't tell one bit from another um, because it was all pretty much the same. So he used buoyant density centrifugation in cesium chloride uh, to separate out the ribosomal, the genes for ribosomal RNA, the large RNA components of ribosomes. And uh, through multiple, actually he and uh, Don Brown in the States were both involved in this, but Max managed to purify a gene first, really. Um, in fact, usually the credit goes to um, the purification of the lac uh, lactose operon from um, bacteria, but that was after this. It was just they had a they had better um, uh, public relations department. So Max had a gene, and uh, one could study it, and that, that appealed to me. So I went there and studied uh, gene amplification um, in frog eggs, which is uh, sounds very esoteric, but uh, was in those days it was cool because a it was a gene you could purify and study, so you could use hybridization to work out various things. Uh, and B, at that time, nobody knew whether or not every cell in your body had the same set of genes. Uh, it was entirely possible that your blood cells, uh, before they threw away their nucleus, uh, you know, amplified, for example, their globin genes because they needed to produce a lot of globin and it would make perfect sense. Your skin cells may make lots of keratin um, by, by uh, amplifying the keratin genes. And who knows, they might even have thrown away the genes they didn't want. So no one knew whether that was the case or whether or not everything happened, as we now know, on a more or less constant genetic background in every cell. And here was a, a frog egg that was amplifying thousands and thousands of times the genes for just the ribosomal RNA. So it was maybe an example of something that would prove to be general once we knew something about the other genes that were in there. In fact, as we now know, it's a peculiarity of, uh, of um, those the cells uh, um, of, of eggs. They do it because they need to divide like crazy um, uh, and make lots of cells very fast in the early development. And so they store up on everything they can uh, store, including histone, proteins, and all, all that sort of thing. And the ribosomal RNA genes are part of that preparation. In fact, uh, globin genes are not amplified, keratin genes are not amplified, and the gene is more or less constant. So it turned out that that hypothesis was true for eggs, but not true for anything else. So that's what I studied, and um, ultimately, just to finish that, that uh, rather long story, uh, when I went to Joe Gall's lab at Yale, um, we worked on uh, the mechanism by which that happens, and it turned out to be a rolling circle. So, in other words, a circle of the genes come out of the chromosomes, and then 
one tends to think of a rolling circle as a circle rolling away, uh, but you can also think of it as a circle with a replication fork that just goes round and round and round and leaves a longer and longer tail uh, behind it. So that was the, the mechanism by which that worked. I learned a huge amount in those years. And then at that point, cloning started. And obviously the whole, uh, the whole genome suddenly became studyable. Yeah. So before coming to your, to your science from that point, um, you are the second guest of this podcast who was knighted, the first one being Hank Stannenberg. Um, how was it for you? How did it feel? And uh, how did it come along to get knighted? Well, you described it as a knight of the British Empire. So that kind of puts it in context. There is no British Empire. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, was, uh, there was when... Um, I, when I was at school, I remember, you know, um, books, uh, atlases had uh, the vast majority of the earth was pink. Uh, for us, it uh, was pink, uh, meaning it was, it, all, it was all part of the British Empire and um, everything was great. But obviously, since, since then, uh, um, everything was great or seemed great. Um, since then, that's all dissipated. I think the knighthoods, you know, they're... There's, they have, it's a kind of recognition. And these days, I think it's fairly harmless. Uh, but, um, and so I, I, was, I was happy to go along with it. I don't really use it and uh, actually makes me feel uncomfortable when people do use it. Um, oh, for me, Sir Adrian, you know, I'm, I don't feel as though that is, uh, it feels slightly archaic and, and strange. And, um, so I'm happy to have it uh, in a drawer somewhere, uh, but I'm, I'm, I don't really regard myself as a, a knight. <laughs> okay, then moving to your science again. <laughs> so the first publication in PubMed with your name on it is from 1971, if I'm correct. And the first one around DNA methylation is from 78. Uh, what was the field of DNA methylation like at that time when you were starting? I mean, you just touched on it a little bit uh, with... Uh... Well, yeah, you know, when I was at university, one was taught that uh, since Jacob and Mono's paper, uh, really gene, the way in which genes were regulated was really fully understood. And after that, it would just be more or less dotting the I's and crossing the T's in order to be able to uh, complete the picture. Clearly, that was, that was not the case, but... The, DNA methylation was something where, you know, uh, these little nutty lumps were stuck onto the, the DNA in various places. No one knew where they were. Uh, and this, um, uh, very little was known. It wasn't mappable um, and uh, no one knew anything about the biology of it. I would say an important catalyst for me was a paper from um, Art Briggs, and a coincident paper from Robin Holiday and John Pugh, where they speculated, where they pointed out that because CG uh, was the methylated sequence with the methyl groups on C, and CG is paired with itself because of the anti-parallel nature of uh, the, the duplex DNA, that um, technically one could inherit a pattern from one set of generation to the next. So they did this on sort of theoretical grounds, if you had an enzyme that preferentially methylated the unmethylated strand opposite a C that was present after DNA replication, you could copy the pattern. And maybe 
biological phenomena such as determination of lineages could be uh, encoded this way. So this seemed pretty interesting to me. And I, um, I then thought about, um, um, because I knew about ribosomal RNA genes, I thought about a, an experiment that was done by um, uh, Don Brown and Igor David, who um, uh, looked at ribosomal RNA genes that were amplified, these ones in the egg, and then they looked at the ones in the, um, in the chromosomes, and they were different in certain way that turned out to be just methylation. Methylation, cytosine was methylated very, uh, many cytosines were methylated in the chromosomal genes, but none were methylated in the extra chromosomal um, copies that were amplified. So this meant, because I knew how to purify these things, and uh, again, this was pre-cloning um, being usable, um, I knew how to purify these things in cesium chloride gradients. Uh, and uh, I was in Zurich at the time, uh, and um, a, a visitor to our lab was Ham Smith, uh, who was one of the people who was uh, awarded a Nobel Prize for type 2 restriction enzyme discovery. Um, and he made uh, a restriction enzyme. It was HEPA2, HPA2, which recognizes CCGG, and it has a CG in the middle. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> I, agarose gels were new and exciting, and so I took my somatic ribosomal RNA genes uh, and my egg ribosomal RNA genes, and I digested them with this enzyme, and one of them was completely and utterly degraded to tiny fragments, and the other one was um, more or less untouched. And uh, since I knew about this methylation thing, and then it was known that uh, HPA2 was part of a restriction modification system, and there was a modification enzyme that blocked it cutting, that it looked like this was a way in which you could um, uh, map methylation. And really, it was conversations with Ed Southern at that time, who was also visiting Zurich uh, at the same time as Hamsmith, that... Uh, you know, so the sort of collision of uh, various spheres here um, meant that I was subjected to the, the ideas that uh, really led me into thinking you could map methylation with restriction enzymes. And that's really what uh, I did. I took a painfully long time to do it. I moved back to Edinburgh. I uh, Basically, I've never been very good at doing things quickly. So um, we... Um, we took several years, I've had the data for a long time, uh, before it was uh, written up and submitted to Journal of Molecular Biology, which then was the prince of journals. Uh, and um, uh, it took them nearly two years to review it. Uh, they lost it. It was two papers back to back, so that was part of the reason. But uh, it was a very, very long time. Uh, but anyway, it came out, and uh, that was really the first um, way in which I got into uh, DNA methylation. So you set then up your own lab in Edinburgh, as you just mentioned. How did you move on with DNA meth methylation? Well, I was quite interested in the possibility that it was involved in development. And so we, uh, I used to go to drive to the coast um, to pick up sea urchins. Um, no one was working on sea urchins in the lab. So uh, it was, um, but I knew Bernsteel had worked on them a little bit for histone genes. So I knew something about them. And then 
you could just mix the, the sperm and it, you, you, you injected these things with, um, which are, you know, I think Zegel is the, is the German for them. And they, you inject them with potassium chloride and they just simply produce vast amounts of either sperm or egg, depending on their sex. And uh, then you mix those together and they start developing. It's really quite beautiful. You, you get two cell, four cell, etc., And you can follow through development uh, the, um, the, um, the, the morphology and also the biochemistry. So uh, the reason why I was interested in that is because um, there were some oocyte specific, there were some um, early expressed histones, again, for storage in the egg, uh, and these got switched off and there were quite a lot of these genes and they then got switched off. So I wanted to know whether this transition from expressing lots of histone genes to switching the whole lot of them off was accompanied by any changes in methylation or if anywhere else there were changes in methylation. And actually there were very, very few changes in methylation. So that was a disappointment, but it meant we realized that we could map where the methylation was. There were big zones with it, big zones without it. Uh, it got us into that whole question. And I think the whole issue of the extent to which DNA methylation is involved in regulating developmental gene expression is still fairly open. The, the idea has taken root almost in the germline of biological con consciousness that DNA methylation regulates gene expression during development, but there are hardly any cases where that's been demonstrated. Uh, it's, uh, you know, X inactivation, yes, methylation comes down and basically locks everything off. It's not clear it switches anything off, but it locks everything off. And there are certain other genes where it looks as though methylation is involved, but in many cases, methylation changes, but it doesn't look as though it matters very much. So when we fast forward a little bit in 2014, you then took this to the extremes and, and introduced synthetic CPG islands into ES cells, right? Um, which effect did that have and what did you learn from that, summing up the whole CPG <laughs> things? Um, well, I would say one of the first things we found, we found these domains of methylated and non-methylated DNA in sea urchins. So then immediately we thought, aha, what about uh, mammals, vertebrates, mice, frogs, anything? And uh, there you cut with a restriction enzyme and, and virtually nothing happened to any of the genome, suggesting the whole lot was methylated. So then uh, with a, uh, David Cooper, who's a student, we thought, well, what happens if you end label The DNA and look for tiny fragments, which might be so not abundant enough to see, uh, but um, might nevertheless be, there might be lots of them. And uh, then we saw this big blob at the bottom, and we called those initially HEPA2, because that was the enzyme we used, tiny fragments, HTF yeah. islands is, is the way we started off calling these, these things, uh, because when we cloned them, they traced back to regions of about a KB uh, that were. Um, um, at the, you know, included the, the five prime ends of genes, they were CPG islands. That was our route to it. Other people round about the same time found GC-rich non-methylated regions at the five primes of G specific genes they were studying. We came at it from the genomic fraction idea that there were actually thousands of these things and they all had rather common uh, features. Uh, so these and are the CPG difference, islands. And the, and the difference to... The other um, CPGs you, you mentioned is that they are less methylated than the rest of it. Uh, 
Yes, so the CPG island is not methylated. And, uh, you know, in a way that makes sense because um, the, the rest of the genome has very high methylation of its CPGs, but it has hardly any CPGs uh, no. because CPG is a deficient dinucleotide and it's deficient because it's methylated. Uh, so methylation causes uh, failure of repair upon de cytosine deamination. Normally, cytosine deaminates gets repaired very fast by uracil glycosylase, but uh, methyl cytosine, you get T, not U. And so that's a, that's a very prominent source of mutation, and it means it depletes the CPGs in the bulk genome. In CPG islands, there's been no methylation for millions of years, and so you don't lose the CPGs. In fact, you have very high concentrations of the methylatable sequence, but you don't have any methylation. And so, so that, this, these are, that then makes a huge contrast between these regions and the rest of the genome. And the question is, what, what's that good for? Uh, and uh, the answer really has come out fairly recently. We, we played a part in that with our um, finding that uh, there are these CXXC proteins uh, are, um, they bind to non-methylated CG sites, and many of them are associated with uh, transcriptional activation, such as H3, K4, trimethylation, or um, um, other, other activities, DEMA, you know, H, um, uh, H3, uh, K36, demethylases, etc. So it looks as though the ability to, the, the difference in the sequence between the CPG islands and the rest both with methylation and CPG frequency, is read as a, a signal that simplifies the genome and kind of points out the regions which are, uh, are, uh, include promoters. I mean, it looks now as though they biologically do something rather than just being a footprint, a passive footprint of something else that was going on. So do you, that, that seems that they are still there because you need them, right? So um, if yeah. you wouldn't, yeah. Yeah, and if you methylate a CPG island, the gene is dead. Uh, you know, it's a, and and because it's of the heritable business, uh, it's it, you know it stays dead. So that's one of the ways in which it's used in X inactivation, at least in uh, eutherium mammals, uh, where the method it kind of locks down these genes, or certain germline specific genes are shut down in the same way. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so the, the CPG islands are biologically important. The bulk of the genomes heavily methylated at a low density. These are non-methylated with a high CPG density. And if they get methylated, as they sometimes can in, for example, cancer, then you, you end up uh, shutting down a gene very efficiently. When we switch focus now a little bit, uh, another area of your research was MECP2. Uh, you and your team characterized this DNA binding protein in a page, uh, paper which was published in NIR in 1992. Uh, what did you find there? Um, yes, we... <laughs> so we were actually looking for proteins that might protect CPG islands from methylation. We thought, why aren't they methylated? The rest of the genome is methylated. Maybe there's something sitting there that protects them. So I contacted uh, Amersham, which was a company that was around then, and asked them to make some oligonucleotides that we could artificially methylate with bacterial enzymes. So in those days, it wasn't like now where you just think of an oligo and it's delivered later in the week. Um, making oligonucleotides, it took them about three or four months uh, to make it. 
and then I ligated these together, and then I methylated them. And what we expected to see was a band in a band shift with nuclear extracts. We expected to see the non-methylated fragments shift, and the methylated fragments, which were our control, not. In fact, what we saw was completely the opposite, where the non-methylated ones didn't move. But every time we had methylation, we got a we got a complex. So after scratching our head for all, our heads for a while, and this was about the time I was moving to the IMP in Vienna, and all sorts of other things were going on. Um, thought about it for a while, and then thought, well, maybe a protein that binds specifically to the methylated DNA is interesting as well. Uh, you know, it doesn't tell us anything about CPG islands uh, and why they're non-methylated, but it might be biologically interesting. So we set about trying to purify them, and we were not very good at that uh, for the first thing we found, which we called MECP1, but we managed with MECP2. And um, MECP2 we purified while I was at the IMP in Vienna, uh, and um, uh, that was a IMP was co-owned at that time by Genentech, and uh, they sequenced the peptide of the purified protein and told us what it, what it was, and we were able to work on it uh, for that reason. We obviously hypothesized that it was a protein that would read DNA methylation in order to silence gene expression, because it was already clear that that's what uh, DNA methylation could do. And it actually, uh, over a long period during which it has oscillated one way and the other, and is it true or isn't it true, it now turns out that's, that's more or less true. MECP2 binds to methylated sites, and it recruits a co-repressor called MCOR, and that contains histone deacetylases, and those histone deacetylases uh, ensure, or other aspects of that co-repressor, ensure that uh, you, you get inhibition. I would, it would be going too far to say repression, but inhibition of gene expression according to the level of DNA methylation. So in a sense, we've... Uh, validated the original hypothesis, which we had when we first got this protein. But the journey from there to here feels as though it's been very bumpy and we've had to learn and unlearn quite a lot of things in order to get there. You further characterized this uh, protein also. You tested DNA binding selectivity and things like that. Um, what can you tell me about that? Well, um, Yes, uh, it's, it, it binds to methylated CG. It doesn't bind to non-methylated CG. Uh, and I would say that really um, uh, it was other labs who pointed out that in neurons, where the function of this protein is very important, there is a lot of another sort of methylation and not at CG, and that's methylation of CA, um, It's quite often called CH, which is a bit confusing because H is anything except G. Uh, but it turns out it's mostly methyls. It's CA. And uh, what we showed recently, our contribution to this has been to show that it's primarily CAC. It's a trinucleotide. And this is done by DNMT3A. It's a side reaction, if you like, of DNMT3A, which in addition to methylating its primary target, which is CG, it... Uh, given the chance, uh, does a bit of methylation of uh, CAC as well. And it turns out that MECP2 binds to C methyl CAC as well. And we know the structural basis of that. We sort of predicted it on theoretical grounds, 
and uh, it's it's turned out to be correct. Uh, there is a uh, an arginine who, that is mobile, and because it's mobile, it doesn't care if it's bound to methyl CG or methyl CAC. It doesn't sound as though methyl CAC and methyl CG would be the same. One of them has a, a one methyl group on one strand and no methyl group on the other strand, uh, whereas the other is symmetrically methylated CG. And it turns out that the CA is, of course, paired to, to TG, and T has a 5-methyl group. It's 5-methyluracil is what T is, and that methyl group is essential too. So structurally, we know why MECP2 binds to both uh, methyl CG and methyl CAC. Uh, we, we can model that, and, and it's, it's pretty clear. And this is biologically important because this is extremely abundant in neurons, and MECP2 seems to be a major reader of this, this if not the only major reader of this mark. Yeah, speaking of neurons, you then also made the, the link of MECP2 to a red syndrome um, in a mouse model. Um, how did you make this uh, connection? Was it well, because it, it was, was already known? It was, it was not actually us who made that link. It was uh, Huda Zogby's group uh, were looking for the genetic cause of Rett syndrome. And they did it uh, by, you know, genetic, genetic mapping, but looking at families, where, rare families where uh, Rett syndrome segregates enough that you can use it for mapping. And what they found is an interval that contained the MECP2 gene. It contained various other sexy neuronal genes like GABA receptors, etc. And then, boringly enough, it turned out that MECP2 was the gene that was causing Rett syndrome. And but it's it's not turned out to be uh, boring because um, uh, you know for us we were interested in the blue skies aspects of this. What does DNA methylation do? Can we learn what it does by looking at the proteins that read it? Um, and and um, uh, suddenly here we had a clinically relevant question as well. So we made um, uh, a model, uh, a mouse model. Uh, with um, We were doing it anyway, to be honest, but uh, it turns out it's a very good mouse model for Rett syndrome. Um, the, the, um, the males, are, it's, it's lethal in males after a fairly short time, as it is in humans. Uh, and uh, Rett syndrome in, in mice, female mice, is very like human Rett syndrome as well. So, so we were able to get to grips with um, the, the biology. It, it added another huge dimension. We were, um, I got to meet um, many of the girls who have, it's mostly girls because it's X-linked, with Rett, have Rett syndrome. And, um, you know, it, it, it added another dimension to our work, I would say. It wasn't just... Uh, purely cerebral blue skies, but actually um, it had a human impact as well. Uh, I like both, uh, but it's important, I think, to recognize that our, this whole field, I think, was accelerated by the, the blue skies work with no obvious uh, biological or biomedical relevance. Uh, biological relevance maybe had, but not biomedical relevance um, that, that took place before the, the, the medical link was made. So yeah, we, we, we've studied that mouse quite a lot and uh, it's, it's revealed some interesting and unexpected things. Such as... Yeah, just quit. <laughs> well, is... um, well, I guess the, the most prominent thing that it allowed us to do was to look at reversibility. And that's, um, 
because it was known that in humans, unlike, you know, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's disease, uh, this is not a neurodegenerative disorder in the sense that neurons that are affected die. Uh, it is, the neurons are still there and uh, they are smaller and less complex dendritic arborizations, but they are still alive. And because they're still alive, this begs the question, if you put back the protein, um, will uh, the mice get better? And, uh, you know, to a, a molecular biologist, I would say that uh, you'd sort of expect they would because this is a machine with a bit missing. If you put the bit back, then it's going to work okay again. Uh, but uh, in the, I would say in the field of neuroscience and also I would say culturally, you do not think of uh, neurological disorders as curable. Uh, you tend to think that, um, you know, you develop your brain, it's the neurons are mostly born, almost all born before you are, uh, and uh, therefore if something goes wrong, then uh, you can't go back and develop again. But in fact, um, the result was a startling reversibility of this disorder. Um, so this was in 2017 nature paper, right? 2007 science. That's was that's the science paper, yeah. Because yeah, in that, seven, you're, you're, I know what you're referring to. You're referring to a paper in 2017. It was published in Nature, which yeah, actually, um, so so uh, it was commonplace for people to say, you know, MECP2 has been worked on for years and years and years, and no one has the foggiest idea how it works. But we thought we knew how it worked because. We looked at where the mutations were, the missense mutations, and they were clustered in two places, quite small parts of the protein. One of those places was the DNA binding domain, and those mutations stop it from binding to methylated DNA. So that's fine. And then the other place turned out to be the NCOR interaction domain, uh, which um, the mutations there stop it from recruiting the co-repressor. So obvious, the obvious model was that uh, the protein recruits the co-repressor to methylated sites in the genome, and that's all it needs to do. And if you looked at the uh, EXACT database, uh, uh, which now has a different name, which I've forgotten, um, of normal polymorphisms in the population, you found that those, uh, the, the mutations, are, the polymorphisms are all over the place, but they're not in those two regions. So you can't do anything to those two regions that, that without interfering with the function. So you had this reciprocal pattern. And that made us think that really the only bits you need are the DNA binding domain and the NCOR interaction domain. So we decided to delete everything else. And this protein is 95% identical between humans and mice. And that to a biologist means it's all important. Uh, so we were going to be taking away uh, two-thirds of the protein in order to be able to test the hypothesis that just having these two domains was enough. And remarkably, these mice with just those two domains lived for a year. They had, they had some uh, phenotypic issues, but they were very mild, where normally these mice live, they're dead by 12 weeks, uh, and these mice were living for a year, and they were uh, fertile. And we only tested a few, but they were fertile. Uh, you know, they were, they were not uh, what I would call prize-winning mice. Uh, they were, uh, but they were nevertheless uh, viable in, in, and had weak uh, phenotypes. In fact, we could remove half the protein and without having any phenotypic effect. So 
what this did was tell us, and I think it's told many other people, and perhaps not everybody, that uh, actually what this protein does is recruit NCOR to methylate sites in the genome. That is its primary function, and the mutations that prevent either binding to DNA or binding to NCOR are what cause Rett syndrome. And so we, we even went as far as to investigate other mutations that didn't quite fit with that. There were a few. And what they do is destabilize the protein. So it's gone. So, you know, they, 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 it's uh, everything fitted with uh, this hypothesis, which was very gratifying, I have to say, because it meant one felt as though uh, one was making progress in understanding this thing and not simply jumping up and down on the spot. So you, I guess you're still working on, on, on this. Um, is this going anywhere near the clinics uh, in the next years? Yes. I mean, once you get near the clinic, you end up with all kinds of regulatory uh, issues that you have to deal with. But um, we uh, collaborated with Gail Mandel's lab um, um, and Brian Casper. She was collaborating with Brian Casper and we were involved in that to show that, you know, if you use AAV virus and put in MECP2 into an MECP2 null mouse, uh, well, sorry, into a heterozygous female, which has uh, the mouse equivalent of Rett syndrome, it was therapeutically efficacious. So this sort of set the stage for um, the, the notion that uh, gene therapy would be a way of treating this. There is a problem, and that is that um, too much MECP2 Uh, is also very bad. Uh, so, in other, uh, you have to have the right amount. But I think there's a huge therapeutic window where you would have therapeutic benefit and you could stay clear of the overexpression. Uh, and indeed, uh, the company called uh, Avexis is um, in the process of um, trying to um, um, do the preclinical work. They were they got very very close, and then there was a hiccup. And some problems, and now they're having to redo the preclinical work. But they've, they, it is understood that they will finish that by the end of the year. This is obviously going on in the states. I would love to see uh, a test of the hypothesis that gene therapy can work with this, because I think it'll, you know, compared to the drug treatments, which are more or less useless, uh, there's a huge scope for this to make a big difference. Uh, to the the lives of these uh, people with Rett syndrome. Yeah, so to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one is, uh, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? I mean, you already told us that you work rather slow, but this may also be because you think very much of what you do. <laughs> But did you at some point uh, just run into a dead end and had to turn around? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, many scientists I know, you know, they feel that uh, um, every paper will be their last, you know, because you're not totally sure what you're going to get in the future. <laughs> will there be anything at all? Uh, one lives in a constant state of thinking, uh, you know, where on earth is the is the next Uh, story going to come from. Sometimes you're on a roll and you can see exactly what's happening, but very often you can't tell what's going to work. And sometimes what you think is going to work doesn't work at all and you're left uh, uh, at a dead end. I have made some changes. You know, we, we were working on ribosomal RNA genes 
And then we found this CPG Island thing, and we just, between one day and the next, stopped working altogether on ribosomal RNA genes and went full-time into CPG Islands. That was a bit of a gamble at the time. So there's an element of uh, what one has to have, I think, is uh, uh, confidence that, and not um, worry that no one else is doing this. I mean, for MECP2, for example, we discovered it in 1992. We published in 1992 in Cell was, um, uh, that it existed. We then continued to work on it for several years, and we published in what um, many people would, be, would consider to be relatively minor journals because no one else was working on it and no one else was interested in it. But, those, but during that time, we learned some incredibly important things. So you, one needs the confidence to think that, yes, it's, I'm, a, I'm the only person who's interested in this, but that's because it really is interesting. Uh, we had some breaks, too, I have to say. Uh, you know, the, the Rett syndrome link was crucial. Um, one tiny little point, when we discovered uh, MECP2 in Vienna, um, at that time, Andreas Rett was alive and working in Vienna. Um, uh, at the, just at the, exactly the same time. But unfortunately, by the time um, Huda Zogby showed that MECP2 was the root cause of uh, Rett syndrome, he had died. So, <laughs> you know, I may have been on the same tram with him, uh, and, but we never had the chance to tell him we were working on the same thing. And that's how those coincidences that you learn about later on in your life. <laughs> exactly. So in the last roughly 40 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings and maybe something that we might have missed during this uh, interview? Well, uh, that's, an, that's not an easy one to um, answer. I, I think, you know, I've been very fortunate. I, I, for a start, I've been very lucky with the people I've worked with. I've also worked in a time where um, the pressure to produce was not relentless. And uh, so I was able to spend time, um, you know, pottering about uh, on, on things that didn't seem particularly interesting and no one tapped me on the shoulder and say, you know, where's your next uh, program grant coming from? Um, Uh, the pressure, I think, now is greater and people feel they, they have to produce. And actually, it can be very counterproductive. People need time to dwell on things. So I've been very fortunate to have lived through that people and had great people work with me. Um, I would say that uh, what I find gratifying at the moment is that our idea that MECP2 was a reader of DNA methylation Uh, I have been through phases where I thought that was rubbish and uh, it was, wasn't necessarily true. But actually, I think it is telling us something about what DNA methylation does. All that global methylation across the genome, low density, is functional uh, when read by MECP2. And if you don't read it in a neuron in order to dampen and orientate, choreograph, if you like, gene expression, then the neuron no longer works properly. So it is essential that this modulation, and it is modulation, these are quite small effects, but they're small effects on thousands of genes. That's what DNA, it is a valid function for DNA methylation. 
And, and this is why we got into this. And uh, we've drifted around with neuroscience and Rett syndrome, etc. But actually, it's telling us something general about what DNA methylation does. And I, I find that uh, sort of in, in my small way, that is a satisfying outcome. So DNA methylation was always thought to be just DNA repression or gene repression. But as you said, it's more like modulation and then yes. fine-tuning, fine-tuning gene expression and not just shutting it down. Exactly. And I think there are, you know, the, the, the why gene expression is so difficult to study, I think, is, is actually because there are a lot of modulators there. Uh, there are stacks of modulators. And that's why, you know, if you have uh, three different systems repressing, let's say, a gene on the inactive X, uh, you have polycomb, you have uh, late replication, you have um, canine methylation, you have uh, all these things. If you take away one of them, then uh, it, you, you are, you're, you're only relieving a little bit of the, the, the repression. And this is the way biology seems to do things. It actually stacks these independent mechanisms one on top of the other. And that's very effective. It means you don't have to have a 99.99% efficient single mechanism. You can have three independent mechanisms, each one of which is only 80% uh, uh, effective. But as soon as you bring three or four of those together, you end up in the late 90s percent uh, of effectiveness. That's the sort of ad hoc way that biology and evolution has proceeded. So um, I think we're getting a more realistic view of the way in which gene expression uh, is regulated. And it's actually a big message, I think, is it's driven from below. It's not that uh, some omnipotent uh, evolutionary Uh, ma grand master is saying you you and you regulate that that and that gene it's actually more like genes buying in to mechanisms that are already there and that means it's a little bit more like um, uh, society than it is like uh, a computer i think that's a good uh, final sentence uh, of this interview thank you adrian for your time and uh, being on the show okay pleasure This was the 24th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotiv.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motive blog, Motivations, at activemotive.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.